verses 43 through 50, but we're going to be reading for the full context, starting at verse 27. And what we're entering into is this last night of Jesus' life. That after that text we just read of, we just read of the exile and how God was going to punish the Israelites for abandoning him. Punish the false teachers who were serving themselves and God would replace them. And he would replace them with that righteous branch who would bring them back, who would bring about justice, who would unite the people back together. Somehow what Jesus is doing in his mission on earth is accomplishing that. But it's not accomplishing that in a way that the people would have expected, or really anyone would have expected. For Jesus came to die for the sins of his people. And he would unite them, but he would unite them in himself. And Jesus now, it's at midnight. He's already betra- uh, predicted his betrayal. And let's enter into that last night of Jesus' life one more time, starting at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. If you'll skip down to verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Are you not strong enough? Or could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, or it is not far off. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came in one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss 
is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed them. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away. This is the reading of God's holy word. I realize the truth of the statement that reality is often stranger than fiction. But let's not overdo that. In the sense, at least with this text. You see, there's only one unique part to Mark's gospel here. Each, each gospel seems to add its own contribution. Each of the four gospels adds its own contribution to the life of Jesus in being able to see who he was and understanding what went on, filling in different details here and there. In this gospel, the only details that it adds to the story is in verses 51 and 52, where this young man is clothed, seized, and then runs away naked. Which sounds a lot odder than I think the way that the text presents it. That the text often, sorry, I'm a little distracted. That when we're looking at the Gospel of Mark and we see this, we always have to ask ourselves, why is this here? Why is he telling this and why is he leaving out so many other details? And I think, unfortunately, the translation that we have in English, and I've looked at a couple different English translations that have made this seem like an odder thing than it really is. The first thing, in the ESV it says, for a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth. And the words nothing but aren't there in the Greek. And it doesn't even say that it's a linen cloth. The, the image that I have of this man is, for some reason, this guy is walking around following Jesus from a distance, half naked, and then he's peering on, and right when he's captured, he runs away and he's not even left with his small amount of clothing. But the word there isn't for just a, like a little cloth. It's the word for a garment. And the significance is not that he's, how little he's wearing. The significance is what he's wearing. He's wearing linen. He's wearing expensive material. He's not wearing wool or some sort of cheap material. This is a man who is well off, who is falling from a distance, yes, but he has on just expensive clothing. The odd thing is, is that once he's seized, 
The only thing he's able to escape with is not his clothes. But he's running away naked. I know I've said naked too many times. I hope that's the last time I say it. The strange part is that he's following Jesus from a distance. And he's captured. And in the middle of the night when you're captured, you try whatever you can do to get away. He was probably beaten. He probably had bruises on him. He probably was just struggling for his very life, and he barely made it out. And he ran away with shame. That's really the point. That's really the emphasis. Some people think that this is Mark introducing himself into the story. That this is like a painting, where the, uh, the painter paints himself into the background because they don't see how this possibly fits. Or like an M. Night Shyamalan movie, where he seems to always make himself a new character in all of his films, that you have to know what he looks like to be able to see him. But the point that Mark is trying to get out is the shame of it all. The reality is, is that the same early church tradition that tells us that Mark wrote this gospel is also unanimous in the fact that Mark was a follower of Peter. That during Jesus' lifetime, he never followed him. And that he followed Peter, followed his preaching, and what we have in the Gospel of Mark is Peter's account, Peter's eyewitness account of the event. So it really doesn't even work to see Mark in this. And we see, if we compare it with the Gospel, uh, Peter's sermons in the book of Acts, we can kind of see Peter's sermon in the book of Mark. What's the reason why this is here is for the same reason why we're told things like in Amos chapter 2, verse 16, when he talks about God's wrath coming upon humanity, and he's trying to, to frame the fearfulness of it and how everyone will be terrified, and he says that even the brave warriors will run away Fill in the blank, because I said I already used up my quota of that word. But that's the point. It's the shame of abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the same disciples that every time they heard that Jesus was going to be crucified, said, well, I wonder who's the greatest among us. Who's the strongest? Who's going to get to sit at Jesus' right hand? The disciples were completely unaware of their own weaknesses, their insufficiency, their lack of dependence upon God to hold them up in the midst of trial and of temptation. That's why we saw last week why they weren't praying. Some sort of sense of sufficiency, not recognizing the danger they were able to sleep while someone was about to come and try to kill them. And if we're going to get our minds about around the weakness of the disciples, and if we're not going to experience the same thing of them as them, the shame of abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to do what they should have done, which is examine themselves. Now, when it comes to examining yourself, you probably should not do it too often. Because the deeper you look at your own capability to preserve your own life, 
the sadder you'll probably become. But that does not rule out the fact that Scripture tells us in places like 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, to see if you are in the faith. Or in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, to be diligent to confirm your election and calling. We are commanded to examine ourselves if we are not going to suffer from these same things. And maybe the first way we can do that is asking ourselves a pretty simple question. Who struck the shepherd? Who struck the shepherd? And that's the first fill in the blank, by the way. Who struck the shepherd? And in these first couple verses, these first few verses, we can just go ahead and get the obvious out of the way. We see Judas is the one who struck it, who was one of the twelve disciples who followed around Jesus the closest. This is midnight, by the way. Jesus had been praying throughout the night. It's sometime between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. And we know that he's going to be arrested and go through his trial around 12 and 3, so we can just say midnight. It's pitch black. We know that it's in the dark, and that is what explains explains the fact that the betrayer had to have a sign to identify Jesus. Because Jesus was a normal-looking man who probably looked a lot like his other disciples in the dark. And what would have been required to identify him in the middle of the night would have been someone who was close. Jesus went to the garden to pray all the time. It was his custom, John tells us in John chapter 18. And Jesus, Judas comes and gives a very normal greeting. And me, I'm, I have like handshakes at it. But in the Eastern culture, they typically still do give kisses. And he comes up to his friend, Rabbi, and he kisses his cheek or his hand. And immediately, the crowd that was with him that he brought sees Jesus. Obviously, Judas sees Jesus. But we're also told that they come with swords and clubs. Pharisees aren't allowed to arrest people. The Pharisees aren't allowed to execute judgment. They're a people who's under Roman occupation. The people with clubs, well, we're told... In Luke 22, verse 52, that's the officer temple. The temp- the, basically the police of the temple were there. They would have had clubs. We're told that they enlisted the Roman soldiers to come. They would have had swords. But really the instigating people behind this would have been the religious leadership. It was their plan. It was the thing that they had been looking for, plotting to put Jesus to death. Judas really was more of just a useful tool to accomplish their purposes. You know, we have three people then, three groups of people that the Gospel of Mark has already told us about who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the parable of the the soil? Mark chapter 4, verse 14 through 20, if you want to go back there at any point. Jesus paints himself As a preacher, it's like he has seed in his hand, and the seed in his hand is the Word of God, or the good news that he is the Messiah and that he's coming to save his people. 
And he takes that good word, and he's like a, a farmer who throws out the seed, and it lands in much different places, in different people's hearts. Some of those seeds land on the path that's hard. Hard-hearted individuals, when they hear God's word, this is the unsurprising reaction, they reject it immediately. They have no concern, no second thought about following Jesus. The message does not appeal to them. They enjoy their sin, whatever the reason, and hard-hearted response that immediately rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a pretty typical reaction, probably the one we're most familiar with. But we need to not forget about the next two. The next two, which detail what apostasy looks like. We see that some of the seed is also sown among thorns. And he goes on to explain that the gospel takes root, that some people, when they hear God's word about salvation, or that Jesus loves them, they receive that with joy. They're happy. But then what obviously, or what, not obviously, what comes up later in life is they find themselves with desires for other things, to follow maybe other people who might strike them as wise. And they go after the desires of their heart. This would be like Judas. Judas, it seems like it gave up Jesus for money. Offended that Jesus was willing to waste his money and so committed to dying. But there's another kind of apostasy. There's another kind of departing the faith which you have no hope. It's the kind that the disciples committed. You remember the rocky soil? The seed that was sown among the rocky soil was the seed that lands in soil. It starts to grow, but the roots can't grow deep enough to latch on. And it's due to the tribulations, the hardships, the persecutions that lead them to fall away. The reality is, is when we preach the gospel, and it's the reality that's always with the church, is there's many people who start off having a professed love for Jesus, wanting the good things from God, but when the hard things come, they realize that's not really the desire of their heart. This is why it's legitimate for us to examine our hearts. But let's not forget about the last person who we're told who struck the shepherd. That's the reason why I started back in verse 27. Jesus gave them a prophecy that they would all fall away. Why? For it is written, so in other words, God's word says, I will strike the shepherd. Ultimately, the reason why Jesus is going to go to the cross is because this is God's game plan for redeeming humanity. This is his plan A, not his plan B. God's plan from the beginning was to send his son, to have him suffer at the hands of evil men, to die the death that we should and deserve to die. But don't forget the fact that the reason why Jesus is submitting to it is not because he is too weak. It's because he's submitting to his heavenly Father. 
That's Mark 14, verse 27. And he's quoting Zechariah 13, verse 7 there. This is God's plan. You know, we get this same dynamic in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. We see this, these two characters who are ever, forever recorded in the scriptures, Hymenaeus and Philetus. He's, they've been told that they've swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already happened. And they're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands. What's upsetting the foundation, what's, what's causing people heartache and a struggle to believe is, why are these two teachers, two pastors, abandoning the faith? Abandoning Christianity for other things. A different message, a different gospel. And Paul's word is that in verse 19 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, is to say that God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Two things. First, the Lord knows who are his. And second, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Both things are held side by side. God knows who are his. God is able to save anyone he desires to save. So no believer should worry about their salvation or their security because if their salvation is in the hands of God, he will not lose them. But that drives Paul to say, and that's the reason why if you name the name of the Lord... Turn away from your sins. Turn away even from your false teaching, false belief systems, unethical practices. And this is because of the simple fact that when God grants someone salvation, he changes their heart. He removes the stones of the stony heart to make it good soil where the gospel produces good fruit. The same Holy Spirit who forgives sins also cleanses from the corruption of sin and causes us to grow, causes us to hate the sin of our former past. We examine ourselves, but we don't examine ourselves to somehow build a confidence in ourselves. We examine ourselves to see our weakness and our need to depend upon, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we find ourselves depending, we have sure hope. But you know, the disciples thought that. We just saw Peter affirming that he would never abandon the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would stand up with him if it meant him dying. We actually see that a little bit. He was probably pretty confused when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ captured by violence. That second point there. Was Jesus really captured by by violence? If Jesus is really so strong, why is he being duped here, supposedly, from the disciples' perspective? Well, ironically, despite the fact that this army is coming with swords and clubs, what does that reveal about them? Jesus had never uttered one violent word. Jesus had never performed a miracle of destruction besides one on a fig tree. All of his miracles were of healing, of bringing light into the world, 
casting out diseases, casting out demons, pushing back the effects of the fall. What do they have to be afraid of? They do rightly fear Jesus because they saw in him the power of God. They're coming in the middle of the night. Jesus already said in his logic, day after day, I was with you in the temple. If their cause for arresting him was somehow legitimate, wouldn't they have arrested him in the day? Not under cover of darkness? There's a sense in which even the Pharisees are testifying against themselves. That they know Jesus is powerful and they rightly fear him, but their fear does not lead them to submission to him. It leads them to using evil devices, devices they know is wrong to try to subdue him. They're testifying to their own selves and to Jesus' own innocence. Christians are to be people of integrity who are okay with people knowing what we've done in the darkness. Our secret sins, this really isn't the point of the text, but just, just know that your secret sins are not secret to God. He knows them. He knows every evil deed that is committed. And you know what? We are so thankful. I saw the movie Sound of Freedom, and I'm so thankful that God is a God of justice who will bring every evil deed done in darkness to justice. That, that's more of an aside showing that I saw a movie this week. But what we see here is they acknowledge his strength. They acknowledge that he is innocent, and yet they still arrest him. And Peter maybe does the, the thing that we would think would be deserving of our praise. He's keeping his word. Now, you, it's one verse 47 of the disciples. One of them stood, who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest. We learn from John's gospel that this person was Peter. And that he struck the ear off of Malchus, the high priest. These are real people. And that if you're striking someone and cutting off their ear, no one in a sword fight aims for someone's ear. Pretty hard target. I don't assess, uh, you know, I don't suggest it. Probably going for his head if he got his ear. And Luke does tell us Jesus heals his ear, even in the midst of this, of being taken off and about to endure a brutal murder. But that's not the point Mark wants you to see. Mark wants you to see this shame. He wants you to see Jesus' strength in the midst of this situation, pointing out that he is fully innocent. And his disciples, who seem to deserve our accolades, I was trying to say, he's praiseworthy. He seems to be valorous. He seems to be in this moment forgetting his own weakness, standing up against an army. He would have known that he wouldn't have been able to resist. There is a courage that we see in Peter. He's not hesitating in this moment to present his body for his master. He would rather die than see his savior perish at the hands of oppressors. 
the problem is his courage is misplaced. Peter is willing to die for the, or rather, he's willing to fight for Jesus, but he's not willing to die for Jesus. He's not willing to submit his life to the trials and tribulations. He's not willing to see Jesus submit himself on the cross. He's not willing to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if we examine our own hearts and look at why are we following Jesus, a lot of people think of it as a get-out-of-hell-free card. Maybe you came because of the joys of the Christian life, which are all true. But sometimes, something along the way, I don't know how we get this idea, but we think we can follow Jesus our own way. Had, Jesus, had Peter, rather, forgotten what Jesus said the first time he told them that he would be crucified? When he told them, it's Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He told them, found it. There we go. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. Peter had the entire time been unwilling to see Jesus be crucified, and he was unwilling to submit to that reality. He was willing to follow Jesus, but only on his own terms. And the next time I preach, we'll see his own personal shame. Because he will abandon Jesus just like the rest. But here we see they all fall away. You know, the reality is, is that Jesus didn't need Peter's help. The predicted effect, which is that last point, happened exactly as Jesus said it would happen. He submitted why at the end of the day. Not because of what they're doing was right. He submitted so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He submitted to his Father's will. By the way, maybe before I go into this third point farther... Jesus is not condemning self-defense. Maybe that's an important thing to say in this day of age. He's not talking about submitting in the sense that you are willing to never defend yourself. He's not advocating, Jesus is not advocating for a passivity, which means violence is never part or an option. We see this throughout the Bible. Think about Nehemiah chapter 4. The Jews are rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah has a tool in one hand and a sword in the other. And they're doing this because they know they're going to be attacked at any moment. But the thing that they were told to defend, the thing they were told to put their trust in was not their sword. Nehemiah chapter 4 says that you have your sword in your hand, be working, knowing that if we're attacked, 
God will fight for us. See, Jesus is actually advocating for something here when he talks about them not taking violence into their own hands. It's something a little bit more simple than just against self-defense. The reality is it's no matter how good the cause is, it doesn't justify wrong means. And the Bible never gives the Christian the right to take the sword up for themselves. The power of the sword has been given to the government to execute justice. It has not been given to us as individuals defend, to defend our rights. This is a much harder command to follow, isn't it? I think we're all like Peter. We're willing to die to stand up for our rights. We're not, we're not willing oftentimes to submit to God's calling in our life, which might mean to submit to suffering, injustice at the hands of others. And the predicted effect of this is that they all left. They all abandoned him. But it's not due to Jesus' lack of strength. You know, Jesus, his name, we, call, we say Jesus Christ all the time. Christ means the anointed one. The son of David that Robert read of. The branch of David who would be anointed with the spirit beyond measure. What kind of strength do we see in individuals in scripture who are anointed with the spirit? Maybe one example would be in Judges. You know the story of Samson? Judges 14 through 16. We see the strength of Samson. Where did it come from? Judges 14 verse 6. Samson killed a lion with his bare hands. When what? When the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He was able to kill 30 Philistine men by himself when the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, verse 19. He was able to escape from ropes, breaking them as if it was wax wrapped around his hand. Because the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He even ended his life toppling over a building, asking that his spirit would return to him one last time. Jesus' submission here is not due to a lack of strength or of guilt in him. Jesus actually showed them some of this strength. John's Gospel tells us that when they came to arrest him, they said, are you the one after Judas had identified him? And before they arrested him, he says, I am he. And they all fell over. That would have probably had you pretty shaken up. And the reason why Jesus did it there was not to provide escape for himself. He demonstrated his power. Then he said, let my disciples go. He enabled them to abandon him. To gain safety. To protect them. Jesus was no revolutionary. He was no robber. Even though he was treated as one, the real robbers were the religious leaders who he'd said just two days earlier 
that they have turned the temple into a den of robbers. They were committing evil deeds, but Jesus, in out of his strength, was walking towards the cross to achieve a salvation. He informed Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might be not delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus had motives beyond the circumstances that the disciples could see. They were human. They focused on the situation and saw the tragedy before them and were shook to their core, knowing who Jesus is, but probably the confusion of knowing why is he submitting to this. And the same thing we need to do in the sufferings of our life. We all have sufferings coming our way. We all need to examine our hearts to see if our faith is not in our circumstances, not in what God can do for us, but is in God himself. Because suffering will come our way. Jesus looked beyond the circumstances that he was currently in, and he was looking towards the joy that was set before him of redeeming a sinful people. The disciples abandoned him, but Jesus did not dis- abandon his own. If we're going to gain anything about our self-awareness, of our, awareness of ourselves, shouldn't this teach us that this is to demonstrate our weakness? Don't we sing, and did we just sing, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Take my heart, take and seal it before thy throne and thine above. I think it's the thine. The line language always confuses me. You know what the problem with the disciples was? Is that they lacked the spirit and they lacked dependence upon the Lord. And they obviously did not count the cost of discipleship. Obviously, when we count the cost of discipleship, of following Jesus, obviously, it's worth it. Right after he tells them to deny themselves, to take up, the, to take up their cross and follow Jesus, in verse 36 of Mark chapter 8, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Obviously, following Jesus is worth it. But dear Christian... If you don't count the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ, suffering will take you by surprise. There is a real price to be paid. I like listening to Ray Comfort, guilty pleasure of mine. He has a lot of different really neat illustrations. One of my favorite ones as he talks about a man who comes upon an airplane, who sits down, and about five minutes into the flight, the airline attendant comes up to him and tells him, listen, 
there's a problem with the engine. Here's a parachute. I don't know when, but it's going to happen. The plane is going to crash. Put on the parachute. That man, he's going to be thankful. He's going to put on the parachute. He's going to sit there. He's going to be okay with the uncomfortableness, probably having a pretty sore back with having that massive bag on, not being able to relax and sit back. People are probably going to look at him and think he's pretty strange. What is this man doing wearing this parachute? Does he not trust the experts? But that man, if he truly believes the flight attendant, he's going to wear it and endure any of the pain because he knows the reward. Don't preach a gospel without a cross. Don't believe in good news that doesn't tell people to turn from their sin. Imagine if that flight attendant had just come onto the plane and instead of telling them about the dangers, just said, I have this, um, I have this parachute. Put it on. It's really going to improve your flight. Is there a sense in which that's true? Yeah, there is. But you know how they're going to interpret it? They're going to think that, oh, it's going to make me more comfortable. I really don't understand how it's going to improve my flight, but I'm just going to trust the experts here. And as he sits there, the sore back is really going to get to him. The people mocking him, he will feel foolish. And he's going to take off that parachute, and he's going to throw it to the floor and say, this had no help in my flight. I've been sitting on here for two hours, and all I've done is pain, and I feel like a fool. The disciples believed in their problem as they believed in Christianity without a cross. When they examined themselves, they didn't find themselves wanting because they didn't realize the extent to which God had to go through to save them from their sins. We cannot make that mistake. For as Jesus said, he must die on the cross for our sins if anyone will have hope in this life or the next. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you don't just tell us about yourself, but you tell us about our own weaknesses. Lord, we are so prone to look at to our own selves, to look to our own strength to deal with our problems. Lord, cause us to look to you. Lord, let us not be the people, the kind of people that reject our weaknesses, who never apologize when we make mistakes, when we sin, whether it's unintentional or intentional. Let us be a people who are willing to see our weaknesses and not to reject them because it's the only thing we contribute to our salvation. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that while we were weak, Jesus was strong. We thank you that Mark chapter 2, verse 17 tells us that 
You came not for those who are healthy. For those who are healthy don't need a doctor. You came to tell, help and heal the sick. You came to call not those who are righteous who are, or who are think that they are righteous, but you came to call sinners to repentance. Lord, we thank you for that. And we rest upon your spirit to work these things into our heart. And we pray that, Lord, that as we pay the price, that we would realize that we're paying for a price for a gift that's free. A price that's been given to us. A price that is so worth all of our thanks, all of our turning. Lord, we are so thankful. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let's respond to God's word by singing his praises.